0: Everyone has an idea, but is it right? Everyone seems to know what a Christian is, how the Christian life should look, and what kind of place the church should be. But are we even close? What if we could know? What if it looks different than we think? What if what God is building is more than a group of good people, but a community? Join us as we walk through the book of Philippians and see together a beautiful community. technical stuff, you know. All right, so as you as you're turn to Philippians, let me remind us what we're doing. Last time we were in Philippians, we heard Paul speak to the fact uh, that he wants his life to take the shape of the death of Jesus. He wants it to be uh, cruciform, cross-shaped. And what he meant by that was being so gripped by the gospel, so gripped by the free grace of God in Jesus, that he was willing to lay down all of his pride, his preferences, his prerogatives, his powers, his privileges, even even not just lay them down, but actually use them to see other people flourish instead of using them to get for himself. And he wants to do that because that's what Jesus did. I hope hope we remember some of that. We were here last time. But you remember one of the things that we saw in that passage is that it is super easy for us as we come in and we see such a high standard, we see this high bar to go, well, that's, that's okay for Mr. Spiritual over there, but I'm me, right? That's okay for Super Spiritual Guy, for Paul the Apostle, I get it, He's, he is who he is, but I'm me. What about me? Is there hope that I can have that as well? So that's what we're looking at this morning as we look at what it means to live into that kind of beauty. So if you have your place in Philippians 3, our habit here is to stand in honor of God's Word as it's read before the sermon. We're going to be reading Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 16. Okay. As we do this, let me remind us that this is God's Word, friends. It is not something that we chose for ourselves. The church got together at some point and said, here's a good word to use. Let's use these letters, not some others. This is a word that lays claim on us, that chooses us. Us. Hear it in that way. Not that I have already obtained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me His own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, that I have laid hold of it, but one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anyone, if any if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. God's word given so that we might flourish. Would you pray with me? Father, over this time we ask your blessing. We need to hear from you. If we leave this place and all we've heard at the end of this time is helpful thoughts from Rick, we're all doomed. So, Lord, we need you to come. We need you to speak. Your Word, preach Your Gospel to us. We need You to meet us right where we are. Whether we are full of faith or, or overcome by doubts, we need You to come and meet us right now. Preach Your Gospel to us. Let Christ and His cross come to the fore. The One who speaks, fall to the wayside. We ask that, Jesus, because You are the only One who has the words of eternal life. And so we pray this in Your name. Amen. Have a seat. Here's something I know about every person in this room, right? I know that we're a bunch of different people, but I guarantee you we have this in common. You want to be different, right? You want to be different. And I don't care if you want to change the way you look, you know, um, you want to change a habit you want to break. You have a self-destructive pattern in your life that you know you should change even though you don't really want to. Uh, you know, you want to be more generous, you want to be more prayerful, more whatever. And if you're not there right now, if you're like, no, I, you know, Rick, I'm pretty good, I'm good. But you probably have been there, and if you haven't, I, I'm going to tell you, you're going to be there at some point. We are people who want to grow. Change is something that we look for. And one of the things that can be most confusing about Christianity, honestly, is what do we do with Change. Especially, you know, if, you're, if, you're in, if you've been in this church for a while or you've been in churches like this one and you, and you hear all the time about the free grace of God and Jesus, that it's not about rules, it's about relationship, uh, then and it's, it's difficult. How does change figure into that then? Doesn't that just mean that God's okay with me the way I am no matter what and I don't really have to change? This passage really does talk about change. So if you're a Christian here this morning, we're going to talk about how Paul thinks this happens. If you're not a Christian and you're here, good news for you is you can completely disregard everything I'm about to say. Okay? But you also get to listen in on, on what we'll talk about is like how, how, as a Christian, we think change happens. But here it is in a nutshell for us to work with this morning, kind of the phrase that's going to take us where we need to go, and that's this. That where we are is not where we will be, but it can never be where we've been. That where we are is not where we will be, But it cannot be where we've been. Okay? There's an outline in your bulletin. If that's helpful for you, you're a note taker. There's a few of you. We have, if you're wondering in this church, we have, and if if you're a Presbyterian, you know that like, as Presbyterians, we don't do vocal response to sermons. I don't know why. We just don't do that. You know, you might be in some church, you can hear, Amen! You're not going to hear that in this church. Here's an Amen. This is the Presbyterian Amen. We write. And if it's really good, we do this. So, we have some folks in this church who are note-takers. We have at least a couple of you who are stenographers. That is awesome. You know who you are. Anyway, if you're a note-taker, take that. If you're not, just leave it. Okay? You don't need it. Um, So, if where we are is is not where we will be, first we need to understand where we are. Right? We need to get that. And that's what Paul gets us to right there uh, in the first part of verse 12. Look there now. Because Paul says, "...not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect." Okay? Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect. The, the, the first thing we need to get to is the this, right? Because he says, not that I've already obtained this. So, so the this that he's talking to actually is about what he talked about in the last section. So if you have a Bible, you can look at the, the previous two verses. If not, it's right here. Go ahead and hit me with that, Jackson. There we go. Paul says this at the end of what he just said, that I may know him. You remember that? Now, that's not just a, oh, that I might know about him. That was a, an urgent, like a, a, a longing in his heart, that I might know Christ, the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that I might, that I might by any means possible, attain the resurrection of the dead. Paul's talking here about becoming like Christ. Jesus. And if you're a Christian here this morning, that's your goal, right? Our goal is to become like Jesus. We are to become like Jesus because we believe that Jesus is what we were meant to be. He is not only fully God, but he's fully and truly human as humans were meant to be. So Paul's saying, I'm not there yet. You catch that? Paul's saying I'm I'm not there yet. Literally he says uh, that, not that I've obtained this or have already been made perfect. This verse is one of those verses that I love because it always makes me chuckle when I hear people's claim that with enough faith, you can be perfect. Like, if you have enough faith, you can really attain this kind of holiness, this perfection. Da, da, da. And I'm like, if it didn't work for Paul... I got no chance. You know what I mean? Like, if Paul, the guy who gave his whole life to see the gospel go forward, was willing to be beaten and all of these things, if Paul couldn't do it, I have no chance. All right. So what, what Paul's talking about here is getting at the reality of every Christian in this room. None of us have arrived. Right? None of us have arrived. Every one of us is broken. Every one of us still struggles with sin. Every one of us is far from what we were created to be. And what this does is it pushes against that narrative that Christians love to tell, either explicitly or implicitly, that if you want God to love you, you have to be good like us. And right? if you want God to, be, to, to love you, to, to, that, that in fact, the reason why God does love us and not other people is because we're better than them. Now, maybe we all not say that. You're like, I would never, I would never say such a thing. But it's what we mean when we tell people they have to clean themselves up to come and hear about God's grace in Jesus. It's what we mean when we say, well, if you want to get the grace of God, then you better come where it's given. And where it's given is, is in the nice churchy place where you're going to have to come and be a part of a churchy people. It's what we mean when someone walks in to our congregations or into our gatherings and they, they're not looking like the rest of us and we kind of give them that eye. What we're saying is you, you can't be here if you're not like us. God loves us because we're us. Or maybe it's the more subtle notion. You know, on, on the one hand, it's, it, we have this view towards the outsider, but on the other hand, maybe it's a more subtle notion that it's not okay to struggle with sin if you're in the church, if you're a Christian. It's not okay to struggle with sin. Or, or sure, it's fine to say, I know I'm a sinner, but to actually confess actual, real sins to someone else, whoa, <laughs> well that's okay, that's not okay, we can't, we can't do that. Paul is saying, look, I haven't arrived, I still betray God, there's nothing wrong with you that isn't wrong with me. He's saying, look, I know this vision that I've painted seems lofty, it is lofty, it's lofty for me too. So Paul is saying we are, that he isn't and that we aren't where we will be. But he also says it can't be where we've been. Look at the rest of that verse. He says, But I press on to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Now, I know in the ESV it says, uh, but I press on uh, to, um, what is it exactly? It says to, to make it my own. But, but better is this, this kind of notion. It helps get on the word play here. Uh, this verse is awesome because it says so much. And my job right now is to try and bring as much of that to bear as I can. So stick with me. As Christians, okay, again, remember, I'm speaking primarily right now to the Christians in the room. Everybody else can listen in. As Christians, we believe we've been rescued by Jesus, right? That, like, there was nothing that kind of would draw him towards us, that we betrayed God by both our very nature, that it's something in us, but also by our actions. And that Jesus came to teach, not, not he didn't come just to teach us how to get to God. He came to get us to God. Right, we, as Christians, that's what that's what we believe. So we say that we are saved. And that's that word that we use to talk about rescue. That we are saved by grace alone. Right, that that idea of God's free gift. Nothing in us merited it. He came to us. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. Meaning that that um, it is that that our trusting in Christ is the way through which God communicates that redemption. In Christ alone. By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Jesus saves us by his sin-bearing death and his perfect life. Are you with me? Okay. That's part of what's going on here. And as Christians, we tend to use the word saved a lot. Especially if you're in the valley or south. Right? We use the word saved a lot. And on the one hand, what that means is we've been what we've been saved from. We've been saved from bearing the weight of our betrayal of God, bearing judgment for all eternity. Right? Hell. We've been saved from that. But the Bible also talks not just about what we've been saved from, but what we've been saved for. We've been saved from bearing judgment, but we've been saved for God, for the life we've been made for, for Christ-likeness. And Paul is saying, I know that I'm not there yet, but I press on to take hold of the life that Christ took hold of me for. And here's what that ultimately means. Change in our lives is ultimately not based on us. You see that? Changing your life, whether you are able to change a habit or a, pa- a self-destructive pattern or whatever, is not based on us. And, and it's, it's harder to see in the, in the English translation, uh, but there's this little play on words that I mentioned here. This, I'm, I'm going to lay hold of that for which I've been laid hold of by Jesus Christ. This one up here is, is kind of the active side of things. and this is a very passive side, and Paul's being very uh, intentional about the fact these are the exact same word in the original. Paul places the work of Jesus as the definitive one. We've been laid hold of by Christ. And because of that, I can press on to lay hold of something else. Again, left to ourselves, we are bent away from God. All of us. We are all bent away from God. Not just the people that look like a train wreck. All of us. We're all there. We don't need refining. We need renewing. You know, We don't need a reformation. We need a rebirth. And Jesus comes and he rescues us by grace. But the grace of God is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. It's like, well, whatever now. I got this and, you know, if things go bad. I turn it in. The Bible talks about us being made new. That though we still carry around in us what is called the, the sin nature, that's, again, churchy word, the old self, that, that part of us that's bent away from God, we still carry that around in, our, in ourselves, but also that by the power of the Holy Spirit we have been made new. Again, the, the theological term is regenerated. And we've been made new so that we can trust in Christ. So that we can depend on the Spirit. So that we can love God and love others. See how that works? So what Paul is saying is that when we trust Jesus, we aren't made perfect. Which you know whether or not you're honest with yourself and with others. You know that. But, we are made new. To continue to press in to become what Jesus had made has made us. In other words, we become... Our change in the Christian life is becoming who we are. It's becoming who we are. We, we become who we have been made by Christ. So you see what Paul is saying. He's saying, we are not where we will be. We are not where we will be. But that only touches part of things. Let's flesh this out with where we're going. Look down at verse 13. Paul says... Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do: forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Stop there. Paul repeats again. Look, I haven't arrived. See that? Brothers, I don't, I don't consider I've already done this. You see, I, I haven't arrived. Let me say it again. I Haven't arrived, but one thing I do. You know why? Do, why does he? Why does he repeat this again? Okay. Look. Paul's not just kind of spinning off the top of his head. He wasn't just kind of like sitting down writing stream of consciousness. He's a very careful thinker. He does this because you and I have this tendency, again, to think. When we see, here's the bar up here, and we go, yeah, that's cool for you, man, but I'm just, I'm just me. I'm just me. I, I can't get at that. He does this because we love to make excuses, and you know what I mean. Most of us tend to look at where we are and hear about people changing and we think, well that's great for them. That's great for them. But we're different. Right? We're different. It's the belief that we are so utterly different that whatever's going on in that life can't possibly apply to us. Now the crazy thing is, that doesn't seem like arrogance. It seems like the opposite, doesn't it? Doesn't it seem like it's like self-loathing, which is really is the opposite of arrogance, but it's the same coin. It's just the other side of it. But it's saying, "I'm so different that I can't possibly." Ch- Everybody else is one thing; I'm something else. It's arrogance. It's purely arrogance. This can't possibly apply to me. Paul is so utterly different than us. Paul saying, no, 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 I'm not different than you. I haven't arrived either. And then he gives us two concepts. Forgetting and straining. Okay? Forgetting what's behind straining. First, forgetting. What he means by this is not practicing practical amnesia. Okay? Paul is not saying, like I, just, I forgot what I ate for lunch yesterday, and instead I do something else. He is talking about something different. Uh, Paul is talking about forgetting our failures. Part of change for the Christian... Is, is, um, is not becoming obsessed with where we've failed. Now, I should say that doesn't mean not dealing with our failures, not coming to grips with the harm that we've caused, or not engaging with the consequences of our failures. Those are real. We'll talk about that in a minute. What it does mean is it means not getting bogged down in shame, not being identified by our failures. And it's important for us to remember the difference there. To not grapple with the harm that we've done, to not grapple with the consequences of our failures, isn't godly, it's narcissism. That's what narcissism is. Textbook. Look it up. DSM 4, 5 now. It'll tell you. That's that's basically textbook narcissism. That's asking everyone else to pretend like we didn't actually do it. We call that lying. Okay. What this means, what Paul means, is is refusing to be so focused on the failure that we give our failures more power than the gospel. It's refusing to give our failures more power than the gospel. That's forgetting. The second thing there is straining, and that word that Paul uses, there, straining towards what's ahead, is unique in all the old, all the New Testament. Paul doesn't. No one else uses this word in all of the New Testament. But in literature of the time, the word that it, that that word that he uses is used most often to talk about um, a, a predatory animal, a predator hunting its prey, and the restlessness that comes from that. And this is huge for us because most of us probably approach change haphazardly, don't we? Like, you know, when if it happens, it happens, but I don't, I don't really know, I mean, I can't really do anything, the Holy Spirit's gotta show up, so We tend to think it's beyond us so that we simply let it happen, but this word implies the intentionality and persistence of a hungry animal being hungry for change. So on the one hand, we don't let our failures identify us, but we also, do, we also don't simply persist in perpetuating them. Which means, again, we, where we are is not where we will be, but it cannot be where we've been. You see that? But then what? We'll look down at verse 14. He says this, I press on towards the goal for the prize of the upward gall of God in Christ Jesus. Okay. This is the goal that we are heading towards. The goal of the change that we are pursuing. But, if we simply read it, we're going to misunderstand what he's talking about. And that is because, most of the time, when, when you and I think of the goal that Christians are called to, we think of moral strength, don't we? That notion that, like, if I'm godly enough, I will, be, I will have such moral fortitude, such strength of character, that nothing will ever faze me. We think we are becoming more like Jesus if we have a kind of moral fortitude that's impervious, right? Can I tell you something? That totally misses it. That's like the exact opposite of what Paul's talking about. And this vision, that, that kind of vision is more in line with the rugged individualism of American culture, of, of Western culture, the kind of like, I don't need anybody if God's working in my life, and I'm just I'm going to be as, as independent as possible, but that's not what we see in Jesus. What we see in Jesus is a man totally dependent on God. He was tempted, but he didn't sin. Not because temptation didn't matter. It mattered a ton. In fact, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross, it mattered so much. The temptation was so strong in him that he, he was so stressed by it, he was sweating blood. That temptation mattered. Temptation mattered. He didn't resist sin because temptation didn't matter. He resisted it because he was full of the Spirit. The goal that Paul is pressing towards, that he's calling us to press towards, isn't needing God less because we're so good. It's depending on God more because we've become what he made us to be, someone fully dependent on him. And this is huge because we can be fooled into thinking that change is behavioral, right? The change is purely behavioral, that if we just kind of fix our peccadillos, if we, if we kind of get over our little foibles that we do, that we're growing more like Jesus. But behaviors are only part of the issue. They're only part of the issue. If the change that you are seeking isn't making you more dependent on God... Hmm, let me say that again. If the change that you are seeking, friends, isn't making you more dependent on the grace of God in Jesus Christ... Not only to cover your failures, but also to empower your change. What you're doing isn't change at all. You're simply shifting one form of independence to another. One sin pattern to a different one. Granted, that sin pattern may look a lot cleaner. It may be a lot more um, socially okay. But before the eyes of God, it is still broken and still sinful. It's like addiction transfer. Yeah, you quit smoking, but man, do you eat now. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, you quit drinking, but now you're smoking like crazy. It is exchanging one way of independent behavior for another. The goal of our growth is to be more and more living in communion with God through the work of Christ applied to us by the power of the Spirit. And as we do this, behaviors change. Not because we have such strong moral fiber. Because we have such a strong we have, but but instead because the truth of God, the person of God, the grace of God has become sweeter to us than anything else. Than all of those other things we've been chasing. Okay? But how do we do that, right? How do we get there? That's the question most of us have been waiting for. Because that's so confusing, and, and, and change is confusing, especially in the church. How does this work for us? And and hopefully at this point we, we get at least the phrase, right, that where we are is not where we will be, but it can't be where we've been. But how do we get there? Okay? Well, here it is, and it all comes back out of this passage. Okay? Ready? First, when you see the freedom change. Look, it sounds, it's all well and good to say, I forget what lies behind and I press on towards the goal. And that, that sounds great, right? I mean, that sounds great. That, there's something like inspiring about that. It's like something that should be, uh, you know, posted to you on mile 22 of your marathon. Like, yes, and I'm going to make it. Like, that's, that's great. But how do you do that? Because for many of us, that sounds like wishful thinking to the extreme. Because we can't forget What lies behind? We can't. Our failures, real or perceived, those things are who we believe we are. We live out of that identity. And Paul is telling us that so long as we live out of that identity, change isn't possible. And here's where the gospel comes to bear. Because you see, when we lay hold of that identity, you say, yes, I know that I'm a Christian. I know this has worked in my life. That I'm just the kind of person that's just going to look at porn every week. I'm just the kind of person that's just a gossip I can't change. I'm just the kind of person that I'm just never going to be spiritual. What we're saying is that the work of Jesus is really good, but not good enough for me. That the blood of Jesus can cover a lot of things, but it can't make me different. You're great, Jesus, but not great enough for me. Friends, the Gospel is that your failures no longer define you. Once they did, they absolutely did because we carried our own sin. And many of us kind of stayed in the same cycles of that sin all the time. But the Gospel proclaims that that is no longer the case. That is no longer the case for you. Trusting in Christ... Your sin, my sin, has been removed from us, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. As far as the, and that's a ridiculous statement, right? Of course it's a ridiculous statement. It's made to be a ridiculous statement because as far as you can possibly imagine, it has been removed from us. Instead, it's been cast into the depths of the sea. And if you're a person who's grown up and lived in the desert your whole life, there's nowhere more, more gone than the depths of the ocean. It's as gone as it can be. And so the Gospel allows us to admit what we've done. It allows us to deal with the consequences and the wounds that we've caused, but also to rest knowing that everything we've done, all of the wounds that we've we've, uh, harmed others by, are still all covered by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. To not do so. To not forgive ourselves. As many of us struggle to do. I know God forgives me, but I struggle to forgive myself. What that is, is to say, I have another God, Jesus, that you cannot reconcile me to. And I have to work for him. I have to appease him. The gospel frees us to not be identified by our failures. But the gospel also frees us to strain towards Change, right? Many of us don't even try to change, do we? We don't do it because we're afraid of the failing, failing at it. I'm like, yeah, I mean, it's going to mess up anyway. I, can't, I probably can't do that. I'm terrible. That's for spiritual people, so why try? right? We mitigate risk. <laughs> I'm going to do this. It's probably going to mess up, so I'm just not even going to try and do it. But the gospel comes to us and says, you will fail if it's all about you. You will. Of course you will. It's never supposed to be about you. It never ever will be about you. So you probably will fail if it's all about you, but it isn't about you. The Gospel comes and it says, you probably are going to mess up. So what? So what? Your acceptance by God isn't dependent on you being able to do this. The Gospel comes and says, you have been laid hold of by Jesus. That he's the one who has grabbed you. Do you see it? The Gospel frees you to both forget and to strain because it says that it isn't ultimately about you. It isn't ultimately about you at all. It isn't either about the ways that you've blown it or the ways that you will blow it. And you will. And so will I. It also isn't up to your ability to get it done, but in your willingness to return to the Lord and let Him work in you. And that brings us to the path of change. And so what I want to do right now is I want to just kind of flesh out what Paul means when he says press on, right? Because he says, I press on towards the goal. So let's talk about what what does that mean uh, in in Christianity, okay? In Christian lingo, what he means when he says pressing on is talking about repentance and faith, okay? Repentance and faith. And we've got a lot of false ideas about what, what repentance is, so let me expose some of those. Here's what repentance isn't. Hit me with that, Jackson. Repentance isn't confession. Confession is confession, right? Repentance isn't confession. Confession is part of repentance, but it isn't repentance. It is just telling the truth. Confession is admitting that you did something, but admitting you did something isn't repenting of it. It's just admitting it. It's not repentance. Repentance is also not simply abstaining. Abstaining from a behavior may be part of repentance, but just because you've stopped doing X doesn't mean you've repented. It may mean you've just started doing something else that you shouldn't be doing either. It's certainly part of repentance, but it's not repentance. And lastly, and this is kinda connected to that, the the one we just talked about, repentance isn't purely behavioral, okay? If repentance stops at behaviors, like I said, you've simply shifted your independence. You've gone from, I'm independently seeking my satisfaction in this thing instead of Jesus, and now I'm gonna seek it in this thing instead of Jesus. That's not repentance. It's behavioral change, not the same thing. So here's what repentance is, okay? By its very definition, repentance means turning from what we've been doing towards Jesus. That's why repentance and faith always go together. They can't, you can't turn towards Jesus in faith without repenting from something else. And you can't repent of something without turning towards Jesus. If you turn from something but not to Jesus, you're not repenting. Okay? So repentance is always turning from what you've done to Jesus, which means that ultimately repentance is needy. It's always needy. Needy. It's always grounded in the grace of God, saying, uh, I, I'm doing X and I don't know how to do anything differently. God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. Right? So it's needy. Secondly, it's active. Again, you're not just saying, What I've been doing is wrong. That's confession and it's good. Confession is real nice, but it's not repentance, okay? It's not repentance. But it does, there's an activity towards it. It is moving in a different direction. And finally, repentance is heart-based, okay? It's not behavioral, it's heart-based. In other words, we look to why we are doing the behavior and turn from that to Jesus. So if I'm struggling with gossip, okay? I know none of you struggle with gossip. None of you have a hard time telling other people stuff to other people because... I know that that's not true in this church. Certainly not. Ever. Okay? But, hypothetically, if you did, okay? If you did struggle with gossip, repentance is confessing, on the one hand, that it's destructive. It's destructive to everyone. It's destructive to yourself. It's destructive to others. But it's also realizing that you probably do it because you get something from the feeling of being in... Being on the inside track of everyone's stuff and letting other people know you're on the inside track of everyone's stuff. Realizing that that feeling that you get from being on the inside track is something you should get from God alone. Turning back to Him and then using your words to encourage others instead of just to berate them or to tear them down. And you do that out of the acceptance that you have of God and the Gospel not to get accepted, okay? It's saying, Lord, you are enough to satisfy me and then clicking off that window on your internet browser that you knew you shouldn't have been on in the first place. This will not satisfy me, Lord, you will. And then moving towards others in intimacy, which is what you were looking for on that screen in the first place. If you aren't turning towards Jesus in faith, you may be abstaining from a behavior, but you are not repenting of a sin. I cannot say that enough. You're just moving one form of independence to another. Repentance is ultimately turning from our independent ways of seeking a status, a satisfaction, and a self apart from Jesus and turning towards him to find those things and then living out of that. It's moving back towards Christ, towards his truth, towards his definition of right and wrong, towards his understanding of what true life is and what death is, what his understanding of what love and what hatred is. So this passage that we've been looking at this morning really does say a ton. It says ultimately that where we are is not where we will be. But it cannot be where we've been. There isn't a one of us in here who is less needy than anyone else for the grace of God and Jesus. But can I tell you that by that same grace, by that same grace, we become more and more like the one who laid hold of us, saved us, for the goal of being all that God has made us to be. Would you pray with me? Lord, I, I know myself and I've, I'm pretty sure I'm not that different from my friends here and so I pray that you would help us right now. That we're, we're probably coming up with tons of excuses why we can't do that, why we're different than everyone else, why we're special. Maybe it's specially broken, maybe it's specially uh, independent, not very needy. Both of those ways of looking at things, Lord, deny the work of Christ. And so I pray that You would, by Your Spirit, work against those things. That You would come to us right now and help us to turn from our independence, whether that is independence in saying that I'm too bad for Jesus or independence in saying, I'm so good I don't need Him. And instead, that You would help us to turn from those things to You. We can't do it on our own. Lord Jesus, You are our righteousness. You are our satisfaction. You are our atonement. And so we come and we ask that you would by the Spirit be working in us even now to make us more and more yours. And we pray that as we do that, that change would be normative in our lives. That when we, when we stumble, that we would turn back towards repentance and faith, not just towards trying to set up walls or trying to set up fences or trying to set up accountabilities to keep us behaviorally different, but you would help us to turn in repentance and faith. Lord, make this church marked by that. We can't do this on our own. So, Lord, we ask that you would do this for your glory's sake and for our good. And we ask it in Christ's name.